I wonder if there's been a time in your life where you've thought, what God is doing is just not right. What's happening in my own life is not right. What's happening in my marriage is not what's supposed to be happening, or with my children, or with my parents. It's just ain't right. Or with your community, or your church, or your country. And have there ever been times when you've been racked with doubts about God's goodness towards you? There was a, a man who struggled with this a long, long time ago. His name was Asaph, and he was the author of the 73rd Psalm. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We think that when he wrote this psalm, he was an old man. And he stooped over with time, white hair, crumpled, probably walked with a limp, probably hard to project his voice. But he wasn't always like that. There was a time in his life where he was a powerful man, and he begins with a powerful word of testimony. Asaph is the author of the 73rd Psalm, and if you open your Bibles, you'll see that, a Psalm of Asaph. That's inspired of Scripture. We know Asaph wrote it. It's as inspired as what comes after it. And so in verse 1, he says this. This is his testimony, looking back over his life. He says, Surely God is good to Israel. That was his nation. To those who are pure in heart. He can say that now. He knows that God is good to his people. He knows that God is good to those who are pure in heart. But he's not always been that way. There were times in his life where the road of life was crooked and stones that got in his shoes and caused him a lot of troubles. And so he had a hard time negotiating certain portions of his life. And so he says this, even though I know God is good to those who are pure in heart, but as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. What was it that caused Asaph to slip or to almost slip, to almost lose his foothold, to almost fall? You know how easy it is. Wasn't it just last week or a month ago we saw the prime minister of Australia just boom down, you know, or high heel went into the grass, or it doesn't take much to, to fall down. What was it that caused Asaph to almost stumble? Well, apparently he had a view of God. He saw God as all-powerful, and he also saw him as holy. And so, given that God is all-powerful and all-holy, he thought it was only right that good men would always prosper and wicked men would always fail. It only seemed a matter of logic to him. Good guys do well. Bad guys slip and fall, stumble. The problem was that that ideology, that belief system that he held, didn't square up with reality. And so he sees this, says this in uh, verse 3. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
He looked at the wicked who shouldn't be doing well in life, who shouldn't be winning anything or in anything, and they were prospering. And evidently, he wasn't. I don't know how it occurred to him. Maybe he just looked across the street. For us, it would be on a Sunday morning. We're throwing our sick kids into the car, and and we've had a fight, and, and we've been squabbling over bills or whatever. And he looks across the street as he goes to church, and he notices that guy's chariots are still parked in the driveway. He doesn't give any thoughts to God whatsoever. And yet Asaph does, and so he looked, and he said, well, how come their house is so much better than ours, mine? How come they drive better vehicles? How come everything they touch turns to gold? Everything I touch turns to dust. I touch a gold chalice only in passing. That guy's house is full of them. So that was Asaph's struggle, that he was godly. He knew that God was good to godly people, But he looked around and he saw the crumb balls were the ones that were getting ahead. So I envied the arrogant, he says. He envied their wealth, is the first thing he talks about. He says, "Um, I saw their prosperity. It wasn't just their prosperity. It wasn't just their wealth that he admired. It was also their health. Or he says... They have no struggles. He says, their bodies are healthy and strong. Maybe Asaph's wasn't. Not just here in his old age, but early in his life. Or maybe his family. I mean, they were always going to the doctor. Not only were they always going to the doctor, but always there were bills there that they couldn't pay. And his neighbors seemed to be always healthy. In fact, they were even better looking. They never went to the doctor. Everything they did worked well. Their health worked well. Their knees worked well. Their backs were fine. Everything was fine. Their pocketbooks were fine. So he envied their wealth, and he also envied their health. He said, they're not plagued by human ills. I can just imagine the talks around Mr. Asaph's table with his wife. How can we have so many bills on our table, honey? And, and we're, we're trying to walk with the Lord, but it just seems like every time we turn around, somebody's sick. And how come they're not? That's what he's saying. And these are thoughts that are causing him, he says, to almost slip, almost lose his foothold. So he envied their wealth. He envied their health. And he despised their attitude. He calls them, I envied the arrogant. You can see how people get like that when everything they do and everything they want works for them. They become, mm, they're in control of their life. And they've figured out how the world system works, that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And so nobody's going to get in their way. Whatever it is they have to do to get ahead, that's these neighbors that Asaph had. You know, if they wanted a seat on the bus, it's like trying to get on a bus in Beijing or downtown New York or or trying to crash a line with uh, Sandy to get on a bus that lasts for uh, blocks and blocks. They would just blast through. Whatever. Say anything they had to do in business to get ahead. People are expendable. After all, they're a bunch of idiots. People like Asaph were foolish. They didn't know how the world works, but these rich people did. And so it says in verse 6 that they 
They pride themselves. Therefore, pride is their necklace. So it's like, it's like a woman wearing a nice necklace. These, these guys wore pride around their necks. Or like a man wearing a really nice, expensive watch. They wore arrogance and pride, Asaph says. And he says, uh, they clothe themselves in violence. So it's like they get dressed, they put on their necklace of pride, and they put on the clothes of violence, and they're just taking hold of whatever it is they want. And so Asaph is looking across the street at this neighbor of his. He says, from the callous hearts, it comes all kinds of conceits of their minds that just knows no limits. And maybe Asaph wanted to tell them, you know, you really need to get right with God. What you're doing is wrong. And maybe he gave them a talk. And so maybe that's why he says in verse 8 that they scoff. I can see him saying, Asaph, don't tell me about God. You don't even, don't tell me about heaven. You don't even know how earth works. When you do well, then I may listen to you and you can tell me about things you haven't seen. But until you can get through things that you have seen, uh, I'm not going to listen to you. And he says, so in arrogance, they, they threaten oppression. I can, just, I can just see them. I mean, I know people like that. You do too. Uh, I have a neighbor like that, or my family does, in Idaho. And, and we wanted to buy the property that were next to our cabin so we could have a little extra room. And this guy was the wealthiest guy in all of Washington State who wanted to buy it. And he said to us, uh, if you buy that, if you make a bid on this property, he said, you'll never get out of court. And so we were talking about this with our neighbors. And and this lady was trying to sell it because her husband had just died. And she said, I'll sell it to you. And then she changed her mind. And he said to her, if you back out of this deal, you won't see a dime of all you've earned. He said, I'll take it from you. You'll never get out of court either. Maybe these people were like that. They got what they wanted. And then in verse 9, it says, their mouths lay claim to heaven. And their tongues take possession of the earth. I don't know what that means, frankly, in that part of the verse, but maybe it's like uh, they're claiming they know about heaven and earth. And because they're doing so well on earth, people think, ah, they must know about heaven too. It, it talks about that in a minute. Because then it says in verse 10 that people, uh, therefore people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. It's complicated in the Hebrew there. It's complicated in the English. But I think it's what I already said. I think it's that, well, I'm at this guy's house. Look, it's to he, everything he's touched is fantastic. He knows how the world works. And probably that means he knows how heaven works, too. And there's a certain logic to Asaph's thinking is that if a man of God or a woman of God knows God, they should be able to get along better in life because they know how the universe works, right? They know that God has given his insight into me and therefore I can prosper in this life. It makes sense, doesn't it? But it doesn't, really. And that kind of thinking has been with us from the dawn of time. Think about Job, Right? For after a week or, or more, he had been suffering. And his, his friend said to him, he looked at all the suffering and he said, whoever suffered being innocent. And the idea is that if you're innocent, you're not going to suffer. 
It's the same thing that Deacon Andy read in the gospel. John 9. Well, this guy's blind. Well, who's sin? This guy or his parents? It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, suffering is a result of sin. And likewise, your finances. If you're not doing well financially or your health is bad, obviously it's logical that you've sinned. But the Bible says not so. And this is what Asaph is wrestling with. And this is what these guys say. They say he's not only upset with their wealth and their health and their attitude, but he's also upset with their morals or their their view of God. And he says this in verse 11. How can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? I think the idea is that if I can't see God, he can't see me. Right? That's logical too, isn't it? Does God know what I'm doing? Does God look at my business practices? No, he doesn't care because he can't even see it. The whole definition of God is he's up there and we're down here. Maybe Asaph tried to tell him. Maybe he kept his mouth shut because the man was so successful and powerful. I don't know. But he says this, verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree, they increase in wealth. No worries. He had worries. Maybe he had worries about his family. Maybe it was about his government. Whatever. He had worries that were causing him to almost stumble. And so what he decides is that it doesn't pay to serve God. It just doesn't pay. And he puts it like this. Surely in vain, verse 13, have I kept my heart pure. In vain I've washed my hands in innocence. He's just saying, it's just not working out for me. I'm doing everything. I'm trying to be moral. I'm trying to live a good life. I'm trying to be a good father, a good husband, a good person in the community. And it's not working. In fact, it's working in reverse. It doesn't pay to serve God. All day long, I've been plagued. Every morning, I've been punished, he says. Well, he has got um, deep doubts about life and how things are working. And he's about to stumble, but one thing he does well, he doesn't speak his doubts. You know how it is when you speak a doubt? It's like gangrene. It can spread through the household. We're not going to make it. Uh, whatever, whatever. It, it spreads. In, in Timothy, it talks about false doctrine spreading like gangrene. It's the same as doubt. It just goes. It's like an infection that you can't stop. And that's why he, at least, it proves he was a godly man because he says this. He said, I'll, if I had said, I will speak thus. In other words, if I would have said the stuff that's on my mind, I would have betrayed your children. These are concerns that he didn't share at the dinner table with the kids. Because he said, if I tell the kids that maybe it's not worth it to, to serve God, oh, that, that's worse than my thoughts. And so he kept his mouth shut. He had questions, serious questions. And so he said, when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. This was a man really struggling with the biggest questions of life like we do. 
If not now, in the past. If not now, if not in the past, then in the future, probably. Well, what was the question that he had, really, about life? And where did he go to find the answer? Well, we know right in the next verse where he found the answer. He says, I tried to understand all this, and it was oppressive to me, until I entered the sanctuary of God. All of these questions in his life, and you must meet people like this, you have a huge struggle in your life, and therefore, sometimes, the exact thing you should do is what you don't do. In other words, you have a gigantic struggle, and so you avoid going to the house of God. Others who are wise, like Asaph, when you have big struggles, that's where you go. You go to church. You go to the sanctuary of God. That's where you need to be, and that's where he did. He says, I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I got it. And what did he get? What did he find when he entered the sanctuary of God? He got the long-ranged view of life. That's what he found. Because it says in the next verse, or in that verse, he said, Then I understood their final destiny. What he learned is that he had greatly overestimated the prosperity of his neighbor. That in a heartbeat, it all could be taken away. Just one downtick in the stock market, and it's gone. Just one word from a doctor, cancerous. Just one gun, it's over. He realized, he said, I understood their final destiny. In other words, not tomorrow, not in the new administration, but he saw their final, final destiny. And of course, he is talking about after the grave. For he says, surely you've placed them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? In other words, just like I said, just like that, it can be gone. And he says, this is how it's going to be on Judgment Day for them. Verse 20, he says, as a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. You know what it's like when you wake up in the morning and you've just had this terrible dream and you just got to get it out of your head. So I stopped thinking about that. I'm not going to finish the dream over a cup of coffee. I'm just going to forget about it. That's the way that he says it's going to be for God. It's like, get out of my mind. It's like he's saying on Judgment Day, on the other side of the grave, God is going to say, get away from me. You are a bad dream. And then... He says in verse 21 and 22 and 23 and 24, not only had he overestimated the prosperity of his neighbors, he had greatly underestimated his own prosperity. He says this, he says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Why does he call himself a beast? Maybe it's because beasts don't know what their masters are doing. 
They're stuck in the barn out there. They have no idea what's going on in the house. He had no idea what God was doing. He thought that God was operating on the same principles as his neighbor. And he got God's view of things. And I love it that he's critical of himself. Man, that was stupid what I was saying. I was really dumb envying the arrogant, envying the healthy, envying the wealthy. I was a brute beast. And this is what he learned. This is what it was that he had underestimated his own wealth. He said, yet I'm always with you, Lord, and you hold me by my right hand. You can lose anything in life. Anything. All you've worked to save, everything. Nothing can compare to losing the presence of God in your life or the belief that he is there. You think there's all kinds of terrible things, but he's saying, no, no. He's always with the Lord. The Lord is always there. And not only that, he says, in, in the beginning, he says, as for me, my feet had almost slipped. He thought his job in life was to hold on to God. And what he learned in the sanctuary was that it's God's job to hold on to him. God is the one who holds on way tighter than he does. You just raise your arm and God grabs it. I'm always with you. I hold you. Hold me by my right hand. You would think that maybe he would turn to self-help books when he wasn't doing very well in life or in business. He doesn't. He says, you guide me with your counsel. I don't know where all of you are today. Some of you I just met for the first time this morning. You might be on the top of your game or you might be in the rough. I don't know. But I do know this, according to Asaph and all the rest of the word of God, that if God has hold of your hand, the best is yet to come. Guaranteed. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you take me into glory, he says. You're going somewhere. Through all these struggles in life, you'll be taken somewhere. If you are arrogant and snubbing your nose at God, there's a destiny for you. God calls it a bad dream, or Asaph does. If you're walking with the Lord, he takes you into glory. And I think the time in life that we want to think through to our final end to get the long-range view of life is when we can no longer make a living. Then what? We can no longer lose anything. It's only, that's the irony, at the point where you can no longer have a job or no longer lose a job in God's kingdom, that's when you become wealthy. That's when you get everything. That's when you get glory. And on your best days, then, you can say with Asaph, whom have I in heaven but you? You can say that on a good day. And earth has nothing I desire besides you. And so here is this old man citing a lesson that he's learned in life. Verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He had greatly overestimated the wealth of his neighbor and greatly underestimated his own standing in this life and in the life to come. 
And so he says, those who are far from you, they're going to perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. He's looking at the other side of the grave. He says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. Asaph wrestled in the arena of his soul. And he found the answers to his deepest questions in the sanctuary of God. And I believe that on any given day, God does that now too. I mean, sure, he can speak to you out there. He can speak to you in the comfort of your living room, in the comfort, uh, even through your television set. I've had a, a friend who swears she's been healed by touching the television set through a preacher. And maybe so. I believe that's so. But God has a special way of meeting his people when they meet together on a Sunday morning in his presence. And I think that if, if there wasn't even a chance of that happening here on any given Sunday, none of us would be here. We come to hear from God. We come to hear it in community. And he will tell us things here that he won't tell us somewhere else sometimes. And so as a result of all of this doubt and overcoming it, Asaph testifies, I will tell of all your deeds. Now tell a long story, I'm not. I meet, and you meet, and maybe I am, I look at all the pressing issues of the day, and I think I have a plan. Whether any of us, let's just say the plan is when you get through a refi, you're good. When you get through um, the baby coming, that's good. That's, then you've reached your destiny. Or, then, or it's through college. Or it's when I get my, my goal in life is to get a job. And we start planning all of these things. Or, or, or some, it's like, no, my destiny is... Retirement. I met a young person. I said, what do you want to do with your life? Person's only in their 20s. They said, I want to retire. And I said, wow. And I thought a lot more than, wow. But that's, I was impressed, actually, that he had thought so far ahead. I don't know how far ahead. I didn't ask him the details. Or maybe he's going to retire at 40. But that's not thinking life through to the end. And I think what Asaph tells us, retirement and post-retirement is not thinking life through to the end either. Even death is not thinking life through to the end. I meet some people say, well, I've, we've got six plots in Virginia. I've really thought my life through. Is that it? Does it stop right there? No. Yeah? No, you haven't thought it through. You haven't thought your life through until you decide that, you know what, my life is not over until I meet God face to face. Then you've thought your life through to the very end. And I think that's what the Bible encourages all of us to do. Not fixate on today, or, you know what, my goal is to get a new administration in. A, a new president in the White House, or my goal was to keep the same president in the White House. Okay, now what? 
Whatever it is. And I, I was studying the timeline of the, the world this week. And I just, I saw that, you know, we are closer to Jesus Christ than the pyramids of Egypt are. I mean, we are on a huge travel through time that's just like this. It's nothing. Suffering now is nothing. Prosperity now is nothing. Only what's eternal matters. And so the Bible, over and over, fix your eyes on what's eternal. Because what is around you, the government, your bank account, it is all fleeting. All of it. And that's the good news. That is good news. You can't make an assessment of ultimate reality through these eyes unless you're maybe looking at this and turning your eyes to heaven. So I think, you know, if someone took that away, took that vision of being with the Lord face to face, if someone took away the vision of glory, then we are to be more pitied than anyone. But he hasn't. He holds it out for even people like Asaph, who from time to time struggle. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, I, if there's anyone in this room today who has not thought their life through to the very end, the very end, for when they will meet you face to face, I pray that they will do that. For any of us, Lord, who have been foolish enough to think that um, the godly always prosper and the wicked always fail, Forgive us of that foolish thinking, Lord. But remind us, and thank you for reminding us, dear Father, that those who prosper ultimately are those who walk faithfully in this life and those to whom you reach out your hand and hold. And I pray that that would apply to everyone in this room, that we would draw our strength and ultimate courage and cheer from knowing that there is nothing on earth that can compare with your glory to come. In Jesus' name. Amen.